Hey everyone, and welcome back to this Sunday School series on the Gospel of Mark. I'm Ryan Bonfilio, and I serve as the Scholar-in-Residence here at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and I'll be your instructor for this lesson. This is Lesson 5 in our series, and it corresponds to the live Sunday School class that was offered on Sunday, July 1st. In this lesson, we'll be looking at Mark 5, 1 through 6, 13. Once again in this text, we're going to be looking at how Jesus' authority is exercised and displayed in the world. Remember back from our earlier lessons, Jesus' authority is really both both what attracts the crowds, but it also becomes a point of controversy among his opponents. Here in this text, though, we're going to see Jesus' authority exercised in a slightly different way than we did in Lesson 4. There, Jesus' power was manifest um, in, in calming the winds and the, the waves on the Sea of Galilee. But here the arena has shifted from the natural elements to bringing healing to several individuals, including one Gentile man in the beginning of Mark 5, and then later two young women. Before we begin to turn to these interesting and powerful texts, let me once again offer a word about the geographical setting of this text. And here again, it'll be helpful if you're following along with the Prezi slides posted online that go along with this audio presentation. In this short bit of text from Mark 5 through 613, Jesus is constantly on the move. In fact, Mark gives us four geographical indicators of Jesus's movement and the disciples' movement throughout this text. First, in 5.1, we hear that they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, had come to the other side of the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, this would be the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of what is known as the Gerasenes. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. And then, in just 21 verses later, in 5.21, we hear that Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. And if you're following along in the map on your Prezi slides, this means that Jesus has moved westward and has crossed once again the Sea of Galilee, and he has landed probably uh, somewhere in the Capernaum region. Remember, most of Jesus' ministry is centered around Capernaum in the early part of the Gospel of Mark. And then in 6.1, we hear that Jesus leaves that place, meaning the place he lands, probably Capernaum, and he travels toward his hometown. That, of course, is the town of Nazareth. And if you're uh, looking on the map, I've given you a yellow line that essentially traces out what would have been a common route connecting Capernaum to Nazareth. It's about 18 miles in distance, almost exactly the same uh, distance between Midtown Atlanta and Roswell. And depending on the traffic, uh, it probably would take just as long to get from Capernaum to Nazareth by donkey as it would from Midtown to Roswell by car. And then finally, in Mark 6, 6, we hear that Jesus went about among the villages. And I think that probably means among the villages in that upper Galilee region. Perhaps the villages around Nazareth, there was a prominent uh, Jewish Roman city known as Sepphoris, just next door to Nazareth. But also in that surrounding area, we have the area of Mount Tabor. We have Cana, which is not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, but figures prominently early on in the Gospel of John, where Jesus performs his first miracle by turning water into wine. So here again, Jesus is constantly on the move. He's moving from the Gentile, or excuse me, from the Jewish western edge of the Sea of Galilee to the Gentile eastern shore of Galilee. Then he comes back to the Galilee region and moves further 
southwest, down towards Nazareth, the place of his parents, uh, the hometown of his parents, and then out into the surrounding villages. This is very characteristic of the Gospel of Mark, for Jesus is constantly on the move, but mainly engaging people in the towns and villages uh, in this upper Galilee region. So again, that's just a small note about the geographical setting. We always emphasize this uh, because we believe that our faith in Jesus is not faith in a philosophy or an abstract concept or or an ethereal spirit, but rather Christianity is a faith that is rooted in a particular place and in a particular time in history. Of course, Christianity extends beyond that 2,000 years ago moment, and it extends beyond the land of Israel, but its origins is there. And so to better understand the context of Jesus's ministry and what he taught and why he taught, it's helpful to look at where he taught and the physical surroundings that make for a context of his early ministry. Okay, with all of that in mind, let's move on then to chapter 5. In this chapter, as I alluded to earlier, we encounter three stories of healing. The first is the healing of a Gentile man on the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Then it's followed by the healing of two Jewish women back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Each of these stories is different. That is, they follow a different pattern. Jesus does different things, although there are some uh, points of commonality, but they're all relatively different. And and it can seem like Mark here has just kind of brought together three random healing stories. But I want to suggest that in contrast to the other healing stories, or at least in something of a contrast to the other healing stories, I would suggest that each of these three stories in Mark 5 are all essentially resurrection stories, or they anticipate the coming resurrection of Jesus. For in each case, what Jesus does is to bring an individual back from the brink of death. In one case in particular, as we'll see with a young Jewish woman, uh, the woman actually dies and Jesus literally brings her back to life. But I would argue that the other two cases is also uh, a story about resurrection or or the transformative and life-giving power of Jesus in the lives of these individuals. Let's look at each of these stories in turn. The first story about healing, which I'll say the least about, is often referred to as the uh, Gerasene demoniac. A quick word here about the context. Again, Jesus has crossed over to the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is clearly a Gentile region. And there he encounters a man who had been possessed by demons. And again, we don't really know... um, what that means to have been possessed by spirits. Uh, Did it mean that he was demon-possessed, as we've come to think about in the modern world? Perhaps, but perhaps not. It could also be a way that these ancient authors tried to describe and make sense of what we today would call mental disorders or some other form of disease. In fact, if we look at how this individual is acting, it it does seem like he he might um, have some sort of mental disorder. Picking up in verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the t- uh, came out of the tombs with an unclean spirit, and he met him. He, this man, lived among the tombs. And then skipping down to 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. So there's something... Uh, definitely uh, wrong with this person. We don't know exactly what it is, but he seems uh, to to not only be inflicting harm, but really not to be engaging with the reality around him. And in either case, Jesus encounters this man, 
And the man asks him, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? Again, this is one of those kind of paradoxical cases in the gospel of Mark where the people on the outside, the demon, people with unclean spirits, the Roman centurion, they are always the one who are addressing Jesus, understanding his proper identity. He's the son of the most high God. Remember, the disciples are struggling to understand Jesus's identity, but the people on the outside are always recognizing it. And so he, he, he responds to Jesus this way. And this man asked Jesus not to torment him. And of course, that's not Jesus's purpose at all, but we can understand the sentiment behind these words, for it seems that this man's life had been full of torture, that he'd been constantly day-to-day felt tortured by whatever it was that was causing uh, this disorder in his life. In either case, Jesus asks him, what is your name? And he replies, my name is Legion for we are many. Now, scholars have puzzled over this phrase, and we don't know exactly what it means, but it does seem to suggest that there was a plurality, perhaps, of unclean spirits within him, or maybe from a different perspective, what we can understand this as suggesting that if indeed this was some sort of mental disorder, um, schizophrenia or the like, then we might then understand this as a way of referencing the multidimensionality of mental disorders and the multi, multiple layers of, of complexity and issues that, that someone with a mental disease faces. That's a little bit speculative, but it might be appropriate to draw such connections. In either case, the man with the unclean spirit begged Jesus earnestly not to send those spirits out of the country. But Jesus, of course, uh, does otherwise. He orders the spirits out of him. He sends them into a herd of swine, and then those herd of swine go hurtling off a cliff to their death. And word begins to spread about what has happened. And while people are fascinating, they're also a little agitated about with Jesus. Um, and, and that's maybe because it is so arresting and shocking to see what Jesus had done. Surely the people in this region had known about this man. And now they encounter this figure in Jesus who comes along and out of nowhere drives out the spirits from this man and heals him. But another reason why the crowds here might uh, turn on Jesus is because in sending out the unclean spirits into the herd of swine and then sending them over the cliff, Jesus essentially undermines the economy of this region. Those swine, however big that herd was, was likely the property of many different individuals together, probably not the property of one person. And in sending the swine over the edge, Jesus really does some harm to the economy of this local region. In either case, the reception is not warm to what Jesus uh, Jesus does. Now, the conclusion of the story, because it could end just right there, but there's an interesting conclusion to this story. And here we'll pick up with verse 18. The man who had been possessed but now was healed by demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Now, this language with him should call to mind an earlier text in the Gospel of Mark where the disciples were, excuse me, the apostles, when Jesus names the apostle, the first things that they are to do is to be with Jesus. We might then understand this request of this Gentile man that he's asking to be with Jesus like the disciples are, and even more so like the apostles are. This seems like an immensely appropriate response to having been healed from these uh, unclean spirits. The man naturally wants to become a follower of Jesus. This is exactly what we would think should happen in the case of miracles. But interestingly enough, when we keep reading in verse 19, Jesus refuses 
the man's request. And he says to him instead, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And so the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's that Gentile region to the east of the Sea of Galilee, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So what's happening here? What's going on? Well, what I want to suggest is that it was, in fact, appropriate for the man to request to be with Jesus as a disciple. But here what Jesus is doing uh, with this man is exactly what he has done to that group of 12 disciples. He's saying, yes, it's important to be with me, but it's also important for you to be sent out. Remember the word apostolos means to be an envoy or a delegate or a messenger of of a certain idea or news. And so I think what's happening here is Jesus is essentially commissioning this Gentile man to be something of an apostle, or at least an an apostle in that more general sense that we talked about in an earlier lesson. He is sending out the man into the Gentile region to report what has happened to him. In a sense, this man becomes the first apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus knows that he himself is returning to the Western Jewish shore of the Sea of Galilee, but he leaves this man behind as a delegate or an apostle that will bear witness to the good news in a predominantly Gentile region. So if we understand uh, later that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, he is only then following in the footsteps of this healed man who had once been possessed by an unclean spirit or perhaps was once plagued by a mental disorder. As a result, this man who in the beginning is only left to howl and shriek among the tombs, goes out into the villages to boldly proclaim the good news of of Jesus's gospel. And this fact is really clear in the Greek because the word translated as proclaim here uh, in verse 20 is the word most often used in Greek to refer to preaching. So this demon-possessed man has become one of the first evangelists to the Gentiles in all of the New Testament. It's a mysterious and bizarre story, but it's a story that points forward to the way in which Jesus's message will not only be contained in uh, Jewish regions, but will ultimately spread out into the broader Gentile world. Let's move then to the next healing story, Uh, Remember, Jesus now is going to move back to the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. And in the next few verses, Jesus is going to do two acts of healing, uh, both with regard to two women. The second and third healing stories are very much intertwined. There's the raising of Jairus' daughter in 521 to 24, and then later, 35 to 43, we find its conclusion. And in between the two parts of the story of the raising of Jairus's daughter is the story of the healing of a woman with a hemorrhage. We find that in Mark 5, 25 to 34. This, uh, this technique of beginning one story, then kind of getting sidetracked and telling another story, and then coming back to the first story and finishing it, is very characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. Scholars call it an intercalation, and that simply means that there's one story inserted within another. Now, it's certainly possible that Mark tells the story this way because this is how things actually happen. That is, Jesus was in the process of healing Jairus' daughter, and along the way he gets interrupted, heals another woman, and then goes back and, and finishes Uh, the healing of Jairus' daughter. Certainly, we can imagine that things could have developed that way in the actual events 
that Mark reports. But it also might be a literary technique uh, insofar as perhaps these were originally separate events, but Mark has spliced them together in this sort of sandwich form for a certain theological purpose. And, and while I'm not 100% sure that that's the case, at the very end of this discussion, I'm going to make a suggestion of why, if that is the case, if this is really just a literary arrangement, and it wasn't, in fact, just a simple reportage of how things happened. I want to make a remark about why I think this technique of, of intertwining these stories might be theologically significant. But for now, let's follow Mark, first beginning with the story of Jairus' daughter, then moving to the story of the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage, and then moving back to find the resolution of the story of Jairus' daughter. We'll begin with Mark 5:22 to 25. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. If we think for a moment, if we allow ourselves to wander into this story, think about the desperation of this man. He is a prominent leader in the synagogue, which meant that he was a prominent figure in his community. All might have been going well for this person, professionally, socially, economically, economically, but here he faces the heartbreaking problem that his daughter is ill. We're going to later find out that the daughter is 12 years old at this point, although Mark has not yet reported that. Now, we don't know if she was born with a genetic problem, if an accident occurred. We don't know the nature of her illness or the problem, but we do know that she is at the point of death. In fact, it seems that Jairus understands that unless Jesus comes and heals on her, unless Jesus comes and lays her hands on her and heals her, this woman, this daughter, simply will not live. And so we can imagine the sort of anguish and heartbreak and desperation that this man feels as he comes to Jesus and beseeches him repeatedly, the text tells us, to heal his daughter. Now, it seems like Jesus is going to do just that. We find in verse 24 that Jesus went with Jairus, um, presumably from the synagogue back to his home. And if we think back to those images of the synagogue at Capernaum, and we don't know necessarily that this happened at Capernaum, but if we imagine a similar arrangement uh, in, in, in Capernaum as wherever Jesus is here, then we would know that villages, places where people would have lived, really were quite close to the synagogue. So it wasn't as if Jesus had to go with Jairus 10 miles back to his home. He didn't have to commute a long distance. He probably had to go um, maybe a few dozen yards, maybe a few hundred yards at the most. It wasn't a long trip. And Jesus seems here poised to go back with this man uh, to, in fact, heal his daughter. But along the way, there, um, a large crowd follows them and presses in on him, so much so that it seems as if Jesus' progress, traveling from the synagogue to the man's house, was impeded. And in that crowd that pressed in on him, verse 25 tells us, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And at this point then, Mark changes focus and begins to talk about another woman in the need of healing. Here I'll pick up with verses 26 to 28. It says, speaking of this other woman, she had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, but she was no better, but rather grew worse. 
She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. I've posted on the presentation slides what I find to be a powerful and evocative image, an interpretation in visual form of this very story. It's a large mural. You'll see it there on your presentation slides. It's a large mural that comes from the chapel of uh, a chapel at Magdala, a chapel devoted to Mary Magdalene on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. And it's this wonderful, large uh, format image. It's probably somewhere in the vicinity of 15 feet long and probably six feet high. And it's a, what we see here is not a whole bird's eye view of this event, but rather the, the frame of reference is down below. We're looking at, at sandals and feet and, pres- and a staff and cloaks. And there, just to the left center of the, of the image, a woman's hand comes through the tangle of ankles and feet and legs and touches the very edge or hem of a cloak. Now, of course, we don't know exactly who these figures are, but if we read this image in light of the text, then certainly the woman's hand is that of the woman who had suffered from a hemorrhage. And the hem of the cloak that she touches is surely that of Jesus. And at that point where the finger touches the hem, one sees a burst of light uh, radiating outward that, that symbolizes the power of Jesus to heal infusing out of his body and into this woman. And the text tells us that immediately uh, this woman is healed. And what's so remarkable about this story and about the healing that takes place is really the condition and situation of this woman. Now, she's unnamed, and we really don't know a lot about her, but we can infer certain things even from these very few verses devoted to her. She is, first of all, she is hidden in the crowd, and faces multiple lines of, of uh, affliction. Of course, obviously, there's the physical suffering that she faces. She has had this hemorrhage for 12 years, um, and it seems to be bringing her to the point of death. She sought help from physicians, but nothing has made her condition any better. Because she has this condition of bleeding, she also would have been considered in the Jewish world ritually unclean. Um, If this hemorrhaging is anything related to a menstrual disorder, then that would have rendered her ritually unclean and thus would have resulted in her social isolation. So she has a physical problem for sure, but is also an accompanying social problem that goes with it. And further still, this woman faces an economic problem. The text tells us that she had spent all the money that she had in paying physicians to heal her, but nothing had worked. This might, in a certain sense, be a commentary on our healthcare crisis that we face in America today, but I'll leave that matter for another topic. The point here is that this woman faces at least three dimensions dimensions of suffering. There's the physical suffering of her disorder, there's the social suffering that results from being considered ritually unclean, and then there's the economic suffering that she no doubt faces because she had spent all of her money in treatments that ultimately did not work. I think the point of all of this is to position this woman as the opposite of Jairus. Jairus is named, privileged, powerful, accepted, and well-positioned in this society. This woman, in contrast, is unnamed, is economically impoverished, is socially disenfranchised, and is physically disadvantaged. She's facing multiple layers of marginalization. In contrast to Jairus, 
who is in a position of power and respect in society. In either case, as the story tells us, this woman reaches out in secret, touches Jesus, and is immediately made well. Note that she, like Jairus, assumes that healing from Jesus comes through touch. She doesn't just call out to Jesus from the sideline and say, heal me. Surely, Jesus could have healed by word and not by touch. But rather, she she reaches out and touches Jesus. And I think this is a very important, though often overlooked, dimension of this story. And on this score, I want to pick up uh, with the rest of the story, which is in verse 30 through 34. Immediately aware that the power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? What the disciples mean is it would be impossible to determine who touched you in the mass of humanity that's surrounding you. But nevertheless, Jesus looks around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before Jesus, and told him the whole truth. Now, presumably, this whole truth refers to the fact that she was indeed the one who touched him. But one wonders, maybe this moment of healing actually entices the woman and empowers the woman to share even more. Perhaps this whole truth is something more than just the fact that she had touched Jesus. Perhaps it's the truth of her life, the truth of her situation. Uh, We simply don't know, but one wonders theologically and pastorally about how moments of healing with Jesus open us up to sharing and being more vulnerable than we otherwise would be. The passage continues and finishes up in verse 34, where Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, what do we make of this epilogue? Surely the story could have ended earlier with a woman being made well and being healed. But Mark here includes this final scene, this epilogue, which was not really necessary for the healing story itself, because remember, the woman had already been physically healed. I think what this text suggests to us is that Jesus is not in his ministry, is not just about uh, miracles and power and healing, though it is about that, especially in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. But rather, I think what this story illustrates is that Jesus is interested in seeking out a relationship with this woman. It's not enough just to, to heal this woman and then not to know who he has healed. Jesus seeks out a relationship. He wants to know who this woman was. Who was it that touched him? Who was it that encountered him in this healing way? The healing of the woman in this sense is but a prelude to a personal connection. This is where I think the final line, go in peace, comes into greater focus. It doesn't simply mean, uh, Jesus doesn't simply say, leave uh, and be healed. He says, go in peace. Go in peace is a common Semitic farewell, but in this context, it's more than this. Jesus is speaking Uh, And this idea of peace, which goes back to the Hebrew word shalom, it speaks to the wholeness uh, that comes with physical restoration. Although it's not just physical well-being, but it's a way of well-being in the world that includes social and economic and spiritual dimensions. So just as this woman suffered along multiple dimensions, she didn't just have a physical problem, she had a social and economic one, so too does Jesus' encounter with her welcome her into an environment of shalom where one finds and imagines and seeks out restoration and healing uh, along the various dimensions of suffering that this woman 
faced. And all of this in this text comes not from a random act of healing, but rather through touch, through proximity, through the presence of Jesus, and through the relationship that comes therein. Okay, with that story resolved, let's move with Mark then to the resolution of the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, excuse me, while Jairus was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. That's Jesus's inner circle in the gospel of Mark. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. Now, as we read the resolution to the story, we can't help but hear several points of connection back to the story of the woman with the hemorrhage. Um, As we find out here that the little girl was 12 years old, it's also the case that the woman with the hemorrhage had been suffering for 12 years. Both, of course, are women. Both are named daughter. Remember back to the resolution of the previous story, Jesus addresses the woman as daughter. And I think Mark here, uh, or at least we find a resonance, whether Mark intends it or not is another question, but we find a resonance between then the obvious daughter of Jairus and then this other woman who's named daughter by Jesus. Both have been uh, physically healed through touch with Jesus, and both would have been considered ritually unclean. The woman with the hemorrhage because of her bleeding, but also uh, the the daughter of Jairus would be considered unclean because she had died and corpses were considered unclean. So a couple last points on this text. One issue I want to draw your attention to is why the NRSV uh, reports Jesus's words as Talitha kum. Now Talitha kum is Aramaic and it means little girl, get up, as the text tells us. And Jesus always would have spoken in Aramaic. Jesus didn't go around speaking in Greek, and yet our New Testament, in which we find and receive the words of Jesus, is in Greek. And so we need to always remember that the, that the writers of the New Testament are essentially translating Jesus's words in Aramaic into Greek. So why in this case does the author, Mark, give us Jesus's words in Aramaic untranslated. In fact, Talitha Kum is what uh, is considered a transliteration. That is, Mark is using Greek letters that approximate the sound of what Jesus would have said in Aramaic. So why does Mark do this? He could have done this at any moment, and yet it's here. And there's going to be one other time, importantly, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where Mark reports Jesus's words in Aramaic. Why does he do this? What I want to suggest that one possibility here, and we're going to see this again in Mark 15, where Mark has Jesus saying and citing Psalm 22 in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that in Aramaic. I think the point in both cases is that when when he transliterates the words 
um, that we literally get to overhear what Jesus says. If Mark were simply to translate those words, we get we know what Jesus says, we get the content of what Jesus says, but through the transliteration, we actually, as readers, overhear Jesus speaking these words of healing to this woman. I think it transports us as readers into the scene that we're literally there at the bedside, along with Peter, James, and John, and the close family of this daughter, we are then witnesses of this miracle as we overhear Jesus's words. We don't just know the content of what he says, but we literally hear the sound of it. And I think that's kind of the the beauty here of what Mark has done in reporting the healing in this manner. So finally then, I promise to say something about the theology of intercalations. That is, if Mark, if this isn't exactly how things happened in real time, and if Mark has instead decided uh, to splice these two stories together, what is, what, why would he have done that? Or, or what, what, what might be the theological takeaway of reading these two stories of healing together? Well, I'll make two points in this regard. First, I think what it demonstrates is Jesus's willingness to go into very different spheres of life to bring the good news of his restoration and healing. The first healing story is positioned in a synagogue with a prominent man and a prominent family, and Jesus arrives there on the scene of that place and does what we expect God to do in holy places, to do something wonderful and spectacular and awe-inspiring. But on the other story, we also see Jesus entering into a different sphere. There we encounter a woman from the margins of society receiving the same type of healing that would, would eventually be given to the daughter of this prominent synagogue leader. And I think the order of operation is actually very important as well. By intersplicing these stories together, Jesus ends up actually healing the woman, uh, the marginalized woman, the, the woman with the hemorrhage, before he heals the woman in the synagogue. And I think Mark's theology here is that this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus does not begin with the most powerful. Jesus does not begin with those people of prestige. Jesus does not begin in the designated holy sites. Jesus always begins his ministry in the villages, on the margins, with the least and the last. He does indeed heal both women, right? So it's not just saying that Jesus ignores the synagogue and ignores the powerful and ignores the prominent. That is not at all Mark's, that is not at all what Mark is saying. For Jesus also heals Jairus's daughter, but he begins with this other woman. He begins by going out into the margins of society, by encountering this woman in the crowd. That healing comes first and is only then later followed by the healing of the woman in the synagogue. And I think that's an important piece of theology for Mark's gospel. The second takeaway, I think, that we can uh, infer from this uh, intercalation or this splicing together of these two stories is something of a theology of interruption. And here's what I mean. Imagine you're Jairus and, and Jesus has said, your, your, your daughter's about to die. Jesus has said that he's going to heal her. He's on the way to healing her and then gets interrupted. You can imagine the desperation, maybe even the anger and frustration of this father because Jesus gets interrupted. He knows it's possible that his daughter might indeed die before Jesus can arrive. 
And while it happens on a very different scale, I think a lot of us know something about the frustration of interruptions. You imagine yourself at work or doing something around the house, and something happens that interrupts you. Uh, A colleague asks a question, there's endless emails, a phone call, your kids, there's countless things that interrupt us from from what we set out to do, from our to-do lists and the things that we think are important in life. And we can think about life as uh, we think about these interruptions, then as essentially preventing us from doing the work that's really important, from doing the work that we ought to do. And on this measure, uh, and on this matter, excuse me, I'm reminded of a quote from Henry Nouwen, a great theologian and writer of the 20th century. And he says this, quote, my whole life I have been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I eventually discovered that my interruptions were my work. Now and here offers some powerful words about perspective. He begins to see that, that it's in these interruptions, that's where life happens, that's where work happens. It's not that these interruptions prevent us from doing the work or prevent us from doing things that are important, but they are the important things. They are the work in and of themselves. And I think Mark is saying something similar in a theological sense. The interruption that Jesus is experiencing when this crowd begins to press around him and when this woman reaches out and touches the hem of his cloak, that interruption is not, it doesn't prevent Jesus from doing the real work of his ministry to the people in the synagogue. Rather, Jesus' ministry um, is enacted in that moment. That, that interruption is a powerful theological ministerial moment for Jesus. The healing of this girl then is really not an, an, an interruption, but is completely consistent with the scope and direction of Jesus's ministry. I want to then move on uh, to one final text as we bring this lesson to a close, and we find it in the beginning of Mark 6. Here we learn that Jesus has returned to his hometown in Nazareth, and, the re- and his reception in that place is uh, anything but warm and fuzzy. Here's the text, beginning with Mark 6.1. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who had heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, sick people, and cured them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. So what's happening here in this story with Jesus's lack of welcome in his own hometown? Well, I think in some ways this story echoes an earlier story that we encountered. If you remember back, uh, this section begins, uh, remember back a little bit earlier, a few chapters earlier, we encounter a story about Jesus talking about his family of faith. And in that text, he essentially redefines family in terms of in terms of faith. He says that all those who follow me are brothers and sisters and mothers and 
fathers. But in this case, I think he's reversing it. If earlier we learned that that disciples become family by faith, here we learn that not all of his family, or at least his hometown neighbors, are disciples. I want to highlight two further aspects of this story. First, the jab, that is what people say about Jesus, and then maybe, if you will, Jesus' counterpunch or response to their jab. The jab offered at Jesus is found in 6.3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So what's this jab all about? Well, when they say, is this not the carpenter, that might well have been fallen as an insult. It might well have implied a criticism of the social background uh, of Jesus's life. That is, he was a mere carpenter. Uh, Now, carpenters in the ancient world didn't have a bad reputation or anything like that, but maybe the implication was, this was not a trained rabbi. This is not a skilled scribe. This is not a teacher of Torah or a Pharisee or a Sadducee. This is a mere carpenter. And and this sort of social critique was actually a standard mode of invective in the ancient world. And that might be what is happening here. But even more so, uh, the next line is is the bigger jab. Is he not the son of Mary? Now, why would that be considered a jab? He is, of course, the son of Mary, um, but it also could have been taken as an insult. It was usual in Semitic cultures to refer to a man as the son of his father. Remember, it's a very patriarchal world, and so it was common to refer to a person as being the son of a father. And so maybe in referring to Jesus as the son of Mary, the son of a mother, it, it's, it's supposed to be a jab or an insult. Further still, uh, this might theologically imply that this person is merely the son of Mary, that his that is, he is not the son of the Most High God. He is not the son of a miraculous virgin birth. This is just a normal son, a biological son. And in fact, he has all these brothers and sisters, just like anyone else. So there's nothing special about this person. Um, he is a mere carpenter. He is the son of a woman, and he is the son by biological descent and nothing miraculous. So the jab is quick, but I think it's trying to undermine um, or or, uh, cast dispersion on both Jesus's social location and training, but also this claim to have been the Son of God with which the Gospel of Mark, as we know, begins. Now, Jesus's counterpunch is very interesting. He says, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own king. And in, quote, in saying this, Jesus is actually quoting a very common aphorism of the first century world, but he actually changes it in two ways. And so, um, in one sense, he abridges it. Uh, well, excuse me, in one sense, he expands it. The original aphorism just says uh, that a person is not without honor in their hometown. And here Jesus expands it by saying, and among their own kin and their own family. So he's kind of taking this idea and saying, yes, you're in your, among the people you come from, uh, certain people are, 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 are disrespected or not received well. But Jesus also is abridging this common aphorism because we know from, from Greco-Roman literature that this same phrase uh, has a second part to it. Um, and it's about a physician, actually, not a prophet. Jesus changes that part of it. A physician is not without honor in his hometown, and a physician affects no cures for those who know him. 
Now, Jesus does not say this same thing, but the text does seem to imply that this also is true. If you recall, um, in verse 5, it says, And Jesus could do no deed of power there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and cured them. It seems that though he does cure people, in contrast to this aphorism, and a physician affects no cures for those who know him, it seems that Jesus' power is somehow limited by the unbelief of these people. So, in this sense, Jesus responds to the jab with a common aphorism. He expands the first part, but then he also abridges the second part, although we see this this latter idea of Jesus' power somehow being restrained uh, actually working out in the text itself. All of this begins to cast the Nazarenes, the people in this region, in a negative light. Um, And we're going to see a similar theme of that negative portrayal of the Nazarenes in Luke 4, where in fact the people uh, of Jesus' hometown go so far uh, as as rejecting Jesus and wanting to throw him off a precipice. Uh, Fortunately, Jesus escapes in that narrative, but we can see here that Jesus is always, and it's not always well received uh, in in places uh, from which he has come. Immediately after this, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples two by two. Uh, Remember that a a certain number of apostles has already been conditioned, uh, commissioned, excuse me, back in chapter three, but in this case, they're now being intentionally sent out on their own to continue Jesus's ministry. What we'll do at the beginning of our next lesson is we'll turn to the story of the death of John the Baptist, which follows in Mark 6, 14 through 29. And I want to suggest in that lesson that that story of the demise of one of Jesus's followers and, and ministry partners really is meant to be read uh, along with this sending out of the disciples, because it implies and it shows a picture of the cost of discipleship, of the cost of speaking out against the powers and authorities of the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's to that topic that we'll turn in Lesson 6. Thank you.